Welcome to the ESG Matters podcast. My name is Ahmad Gomis, and today I have Eddie Bedrina. Eddie is the CEO of Eden Green Technology, a vertical farming technology company that helps folks around the world sustainably grow large amounts of food using less land, water, and energy. Outside of his leadership position at Eden Green, he is at the board member of Seed Effect, a micro-lending nonprofit focused on fostering economic stability. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Amath. To start off, can you give a bit of background on yourself and what was the reason for starting Eaton Green Technology? Sure. So my background is, I've kind of got like three chapters in my career. The first is government. So I spent quite a bit of time in government and foreign policy uh, with the U.S. Department of State and then the White House. And then I moved on to entrepreneurship. That'll be my second chapter. 2010, I started a company called BuzzShift. That was a digital marketing company. Bootstrapped that with my business partner. Uh, grew it to a size to be acquired. It was acquired in 2016. Bought it back 11 months later and then continued running it. That's my second chapter. And it's a chapter in of itself. You talk about uh, selling it, growing a company, selling it, buying it back, and then running it again. And we actually sold it about a year and a half ago again for the second time. But while I was running BuzzShift for the second time, my I was present in running that business, but my heart was being drawn elsewhere. And I really wanted to run a company that, or be a part of a company that had huge social impact, cultural impact, a company that for every one unit of effort that I put out, I could see a 10 to 20 X return on my community around me. And then honestly, I wanted to run a hardware software company. I had been there, done that and gotten the M&A t-shirt for professional services. So with those sort of three big checks in mind, I had the opportunity just to pass that along to family and friends and colleagues and colleague of mine put me on to eating green. Uh, it would actually started in 2017 and I came on board as CEO in 2019. And uh, really the goal there as I came on board was to take this unbelievable patented technology, wrap a business model around it that was cogent, explainable, then honestly scalable, and then uh, take it to market. So that's what I've been doing for the past three years. So it's really interesting, your background. You have this, as you said, sort of multifaceted background and this entrepreneurial spirit. And it sounds as if you're really trying to leverage that background with Eden Green to really see how you can multiply the efforts to do good in the world. And one thing I know, we've all heard about the impact of climate change on farmland and farmers. And I'm curious, what are the ways in which the Eating Green technology can positively improve farming outcomes and ultimately help secure food systems around the world? We see that with a lot of drastic weather changes, floods in Pakistan that happened over the summer and droughts in other places that the need for improved farming outcomes for our growing population is going to be critical in the future. Yeah, you know, Controlled Environment Agriculture, CEA for short, is trying to solve for that, those problems in a very general way, which is how can you decrease land usage? How can you decrease water usage, make it way more efficient? And how can you do that relatively close to population centers? And so, you know, CEA, CEA as a whole, you, you can divide it into two buckets, if you will. The first is 
flat tray automated greenhouses. And those have been perfected by the Dutch and the French for many years now. They're just, they're starting to make their way over to the United States, but flat tray automated greenhouses. So tons of sunlight, but big, huge acres under roof. And the great thing about that is those use sunlight, right? So they're relatively energy efficient on the sunlight, on the, on the light electricity costs. Uh, where they start to fall short is actually you need a lot of acreage under roof to make those things work from unit economics perspective, something where investors are willing to invest and scale those out. And when you put such large acreage under roof, you really run into not necessarily light electricity, but air handling electricity, and then labor costs for that amount of acreage. And then finally, transportation and logistics costs, because the land costs just don't work close to a population center. You have to have acres and acres of land. And so you've got to put those in rural areas. And you also run into labor issues when you have those in rural areas. So the other end of the CEA spectrum has tried to solve for those environmental concerns by putting indoor farms near population centers. And indoor farms are great. They solve the problem of density. They're much more dense per foot, you know, in terms of output than a greenhouse. And they are local, right? They're sometimes located next to grocery stores. And you've seen those, they may be, you know, containerized or they may be big warehouses. The problem with those are light electricity costs are unbelievably high because you have put them in warehouses or in containers. And so you've blocked out every bit of sunlight there is. So you've got to make up for that some way. And that way is LED lighting. Well, LED lighting times 36 feet high times an acre and a half equals a lot of lighting to purchase. So the CapEx is really high. And then more importantly, the operational expenses unbelievably high. So what you end up getting is your cost to produce and your ability to make a profit on those. In almost any of the indoor farms right now, the ability to make a profit is virtually non-existent. No one's figured that out yet really on an indoor farm. So what if you could combine the efficiency of a greenhouse with the vertical density of an indoor farm. And, and that's where we come in. So we think we've built a better mousetrap and have patented it as such to where we can grow a lot of greens in a small amount of space and use, in some cases, a 10th to an 11th of the electricity costs of an indoor vertical farm. That sounds really interesting. And I, one thing I'm curious about is when you said you've built a better mousetrap, and you sort of been able to mitigate the issues with the two previously mentioned sort of business models. When you think about the type of produce that can be grown, are there certain types of produce that are more amenable to what you're talking about? Or are there certain ones like perfectly anecdotally, I grow like watermelons in the summertime, right? Yeah, and right, right, they right. just need a lot of space. They, yeah, they take they up a lot of energy. That does not seem like it would yeah. be as conducive for, for what you're talking about. So I'm, I'm just curious as to what would be the sort of the ideal types of produce. Yeah, I, I would say the approach to take towards CEA, whether it's greenhouses or indoor farms or us, which is a hybrid of the two, the approach to take is not to look for a silver bullet. I think there are going to be many solutions in the CEA space and in the conventional space to provide all of the food needs that, that the population requires, right? So you're correct. Watermelons, any sort of melons, any tubers are honestly best done in conventional, you know, field-grown uh, situations and environments. 
it's just because, you know, they need more space. They need way more sunlight. Maybe they need to grow underground, right? So there's just some physical limitations of that. There are other varietals that are well-suited towards indoor farming or some variant of that. I mean, a perfect example of that is tomatoes. Uh, if you've eaten a tomato in the last 10 years, it's probably been from within inside a green, greenhouse. Uh, that's just the way they're grown now, whether they're rudimentary hoop houses or whether they're full on greenhouses, that's just the way they're grown. So they're already examples of a varietal. Here's a, a plant that does like the, there's just a competitive advantage to be done indoors. Another one of those is leafy greens, right? That's why a lot of the CEA has been, industry has been focused on leafy greens is because those really are, if you can control those consistently in terms of environment and light, uh, you can grow those year round at, at a pretty competitive cost. The problem is, again, when you get into either of those greenhouses or indoor farming, the, the costs, there's, it's a commodity. And so there's the price elasticity on those is not very elastic. And so you really have to come in at a price, at a commodity price, uh, where the consumer will buy it, uh, but then also where you make a profit. And that's really difficult right now for both of those. And so that's what we're focused on, right? Little do people know the lettuce industry in the United States alone, not talking about worldwide, just literally the United States is an estimated $8 billion a year and growing about 10 to 15% a year. I don't know about you, Moth, I mean, $8 billion is a lot of money, right? And so the other part of that is 90 to 95% of all those, that lettuce, that $8 billion industry is grown in two spots, Salinas Valley, California, and Yuma, Arizona. And, you know, you talk about the floods in Pakistan, you don't even have to go that far to understand. We've got significant weather volatility and climate patterns, volatile climate patterns uh, that are making growing just lettuce very difficult in either of those two places. So... I'm just going to go out on a limb and I'm no economist. I just play one on TV, but to have an $8 billion industry almost exclusively residing on two really uh, volatile West coast locations is not great for food security. So if we can make a dent in that leafy green and just the lettuce, but then expanded the leafy greens and herbs, if we can make a dent in that supply and bring it closer to home, bring it more local, bring it more consistently and have it done in a way that's environmentally way more environmentally friendly and sustainable than Felinus or Yuma, then I can make a good business out of that. And it's really interesting when you think about lettuce and how that is such a huge industry and 8 billion is nothing to snuff at. And it being really sort of centralized just in two locations in the US is pretty amazing. When you think about selfishly for people like myself who work in corporate ESG functions and roles, we're always looking at ways to decrease our carbon footprint. And from a logistics standpoint, from a farm to table standpoint, bringing that lettuce, something that nearly everyone uses almost on a daily basis, closer to those centers, decreasing the logistics issues, decreasing the carbon footprint. And then what's interesting, I think, with your technology that I'm interested in is how you're able to really create a strong narrative around food security and then how this also be leveraged for food deserts, right? Oftentimes we hear grocery stores or people in low to moderate neighborhoods can't get access to quality food because it costs too much to basically send it there. Not necessarily that people can't afford it, it just costs too much for companies to, to do this. So 
there is sounds like there's an opportunity here with Eden Green technology for people who want to leverage it in very unique ways to grow vegetables, uh, to your point, probably more so leafy greens in the beginning, but really grow that out in ways to provide improved food security for people who are most vulnerable in our population, as well as diversify our where we are getting our food from, because we know that with climate change, things are becoming more and more difficult to acquire, including the land and water tables decreasing and things of that nature. So a question I have for you when it comes to your, you, you've sort of laid out the business case for what your company does, the value it brings to the need is really meeting. Can you talk about sort of who your target audience is or who your target consumer customers are? Is it large industrial farmers? Is it smaller, more boutique farms? Is it a regular person who may be a hobby farmer? I'm just curious as to like, who do you really identify as your target audience or your target customer base? Yeah, that's a good question. So think of us less as a technology provider for a farm or farmers or customer and think of us more as a farm. So, you know, as a, and local farms located near or adjacent to distribution centers, our customers actually the distributors and grocery stores who the consumers buy from right so i think of us as a farmer and in our the customer of the farmer or the supply chain you know anyone along the supply chain so what makes us different though is that much like unlike our competitors almost every competitor that, that i can think of whether it be bright farms gotham greens bowery any of those they all have their own retail brand and there's a business case behind that retail brand. It's mostly for margin. Uh, it's a higher operational cost, but there's higher margins there. We don't need those to survive. That's probably the biggest difference between us and some of our other, almost all of our competitors is we don't want our own retail brand. We actually have a low enough production cost in the way that our economic units are built, our greenhouses are built, is that we primarily do white label and private label. So meaning that we work with our distributors and the grocers to provide greens for their own labels. So, you know, every grocer has their own private label and we're the power behind those private labels. So those in essence are customers, but then ultimately the end consumer is our customer as well, although they'll never see our brand on the package. And that end consumer, honestly, we want to provide really high quality greens at an affordable price for them. So many of our competitors, because they have their own retail label and because they need the margins, you're probably looking at a premium cost. And so their assumption is that people will pay more. Their assumption is that uh, people will, in the ultra premium sector, will pay and continue to pay $4, $5, $6 for a head of lettuce. Our assumption is the exact opposite. We're not interested in that one or 2% that can have the ability to purchase that. We're interested in the 99, you know, the rest of the country, if you will, that just is looking for quality, affordable greens that are good for them, good for their families, and that they can consistently access. So that's how we're trying to solve as a business. But then also, you know, to your point, it really comes into play with if you can get USDA fancy or grade one greens at a really affordable price, and you can do it with the volumes 
uh, that we're talking about, then the ability to access the ability for grocery stores, for distributors to make those products available in areas that are lower socioeconomic status, I think it becomes more readily available for those grocers and distributors to offer those uh, because they know those folks will, will buy them, right? So you talk about food deserts, there's physical constraints of how many grocery stores are in, you know, a three mile radius, which is typical of a food desert. There's probably one grocery store in two to three mile radius if that, but also it's what goes into the grocery store. And that's a much more complicated issue of supply chain and margins and profit and where the grocery stores feel like they can sell things before they go badly. And so a lot of times greens and fresh produce don't make it down to those grocery stores because they've done the math and push come the shove that stuff is too expensive and it goes badly too quickly that the consumer won't buy it. Thus it's a downwards spiral of, well, if we can't supply it, then the consumer won't buy it. But if we do supply it and it goes bad really quickly, then the consumer won't buy it. So then we'll supply less, which means the consumer has less options and then just kind of goes downward from there. Right. But if you can break that cycle by saying, Hey, we've got the volume and we've got the affordability and we've got it's local, so it lasts on the shelf one to two weeks instead of four days. That's a different set of value propositions for that that consumer uh, that maybe until that point wouldn't even think of buying fresh produce because it didn't last that long. All of a sudden, they've got an option there that wasn't there before. Yeah, thank you for that. I think it's really important for people to understand how critical food and sort of location makes when it comes to how sort of the options that you have when it comes to what's on your, what's on your plate, what's in your, your grocery stores and, and giving that example of how much better it would be for the end consumer if it was closer so it could last longer, it could be more shelf stable and things of that nature. It's really helpful. Uh, Pivoting a bit, looking larger, what are some of the challenges you see ad- uh, you see with addressing climate change with food and agriculture that you're seeing either in the U.S. or internationally? I ask that because we understand that it's just getting harder and harder to source land to do a lot of the things that agriculture needs to do, and your technology is a way to to mitigate that, including the operational costs necessary to run a farm. But generally, what are some of the larger changes that you see that can impact how food and agriculture are done today or in the future? Yeah, I would say more than land. The number one factor that's changing the way food is produced is water, accessibility to water. I've been a big just proponent of this saying, but water is the new oil. I said that for a couple of years now. And if you look at some of the big macro trends, both in terms of the markets in terms of investment, in terms of biggest impacts and drivers of food prices and food supply, it all comes back to water. Listen, we've got land for days here in the US. Honestly, we've got land, like land, unless you're in a landlocked or you know some arid type of environment like some of the Middle Eastern or some of the Asian countries, the reality is you have land, the, the water, clean water, potable water, water that will will be additive to the plants uh, and just water supply in general is where the real problem lies. 
So that water volatility and the water access, I think, is only increasing with volatility and it's decreasing in terms of access. So if you can find ways to have a minimal use of water while still being affordable, I think that's where uh, I would say we have the most promise uh, for for future farming methods is a very efficient use of water uh, in a way that's affordable. So yeah, that, that would be my main main driver in everything that I look at is, okay, how accessible is the water? How much water do we need to grow that plant? And uh, how quickly can we grow it with the least amount of water? Yeah, that's um, generally we're starting to see water become the next major environmental focus with a lot of groups looking at decreasing their carbon emissions. They're really starting to pivot to water use and how water is so important to everything that we're doing and how we can decrease and our dependency and really think critically about our usage and do we need the type of water we've been using to get to the same effect. So I 100% can see that impacting food and how we grow things now and going into the future. I sort of to close out here, what's on the horizon for Eden Green Technology? What, what are you excited about? You know, we're excited about scaling. So we are in, in the middle of our Series B raise and it's going rather well. But we anticipate we anticipate building 20 of these greenhouses nationally in the next five years. And so really the, the idea, the vision to have a mesh network of these greenhouses so that we could have a nationally local supply of greens is what's really kind of gets me up every day knowing like, man, we are scaling this out and we're doing it in such a way that it's profitable. And when it's profitable, that means it's sustainable economically as well as trying to m- and making sure that it's sustainable environmentally. I think that to me is the most exciting part. Awesome. Thank you so much, Eddie, for being a guest on the ESG Matters podcast. If anyone wants to get more information about you or about Eden Green, what's the best way that they can reach out to you or learn more about Eden Green technology? Yeah, to learn more, just go to EdenGreen.com, like Eden, the Garden of Eden green.com or you can just reach out at info at eatinggreen.com and get more information all right thank you so much eddie for being a guest on the esg matters podcast thanks so much Amal. appreciate it 